So uh, we had our gal chili cheese fries and she called our office and she said, J Max, um, I was cooking some chili cheese fries. This is a message literally that she left um, and, I, and I burned up the kitchen. And that's literally what happened. She was cooking some chili cheese fries. She burned up the kitchen. Fortunately with her carrier, it was pretty easy. We filed the claim with them because we require, like Karen does, we, we do on the back end, all of that work that she's talking about. We filed it through them. They sent an adjuster, blah, blah, blah. When claim time comes and chili cheese fries burns up my next kitchen, how do I get my owner's kitchen covered through second nature? <laughs> Holy cow, we've got a lot of questions and that's relevant because uh, A, it's a hot topic, but B, Second Nature decided just last week that there's a lot of families being affected overseas. It's not something where our business is international and directly in a place to help those folks. So indirectly, we asked what we could do and uh, triple win mindset. Hey, how can we give property managers what they want? How can we give families in need what they need? and do it in such a way where it's fun and enjoyable for Second Nature as well. And so we're donating $20 for every question asked on Triple Win Live, including those retroactively that were asked before we decided to do that. And so happy to say we've got over $1,000 raised before this even starts, which is really exciting. And we're expecting a lot of great questions and a lot of great conversation today. But Laura Mack is going to be looking to the chat. Put your live questions in the chat as you have them here today. Uh, we'd love to bring you off of mute and she'll just help cue you up and bring you on. And we'd love for people to chime in. It's okay if you've got a question or comment to put it in there and jump in the mix. So we'd love for it to be much like the lobby bar, but a digital version of that and a little more structured um, so we can get some great content out of this. So we'll give live questions priority. We've got a bunch of questions submitted in advance we can go to. And any that we don't get to in our scheduled time today, we're committed because of the whole $20 raised. We don't want to put any barrier to as many questions being asked. We, we will commit to answering them in the triple win property manager group. And Laura will just drop a link to that Facebook group. It's a private Facebook group just for professional property managers like yourself. Don't have to be a second nature customer to be a member of that group. You just have to be a professional property manager who believes in stacking triple win experiences for residents, investors, and your property management teams, making property management better for everybody. If that's the way you think about the business and want to be building the business, then that's a place you'll belong. And we'll answer a number of questions there that we don't get to live today. With that, I also have a special guest who I'd like to introduce uh, to everybody. Michael, today, just do a brief insufficient introduction. We actually met Michael when he was a senior product manager in the insurance division at RealPage, uh, many of you are RealPage customers today uh, and friends of RealPage as we are. Uh, and I know I know Michael has uh, has many friends there still. Uh, but that's how we first met and started talking to Michael about insurance. And then uh, he he actually made a, a career move into insure tech. And anyway, our conversations continued, and Michael has been a really important collaborator and contributor to what Second Nature is doing and the insurance team and what we're rolling out. So we'll get into that a little bit today. I know a lot of people are eager and have questions to hear about what Second Nature is doing specifically, but that's it. So just to recap, $20 for Ukraine, every question, format, live Q&A here. You can ask questions at any time. We're going to do a triple win breakdown on insurance here. 
to get started, we've got Michael Tanetti and uh, questions submitted in advance. We'll get to as many of those as we can. Otherwise, the Facebook group is where you'll check that out if you don't get your question answered here today. So I want to kick this off with a couple statistics I found uh, that are relevant, just setting some context for this. Uh, there was an ORCID study, and it, it showed that 41% of renters have renter's insurance. 41% of renters have renter's insurance. Despite the fact that as we asked many of you who registered for this event, I believe is around 80% or higher, make it a requirement to have renter's insurance. And even people we surveyed before this event, uh, it was even higher than that, closer to 90% of folks. It's a requirement to have renter's insurance, and yet only 41% of renters do. And so there's a compliance gap. We'll talk about why that happens and ways you can close the gap as far as that's considered. A couple of the things we found in our research that was kind of interesting in the way we think about coverage is call it three buckets. And you may have seen this in the promo of the three types of insurance that are critical to think about, you know, as far as what you're going to have. And there'll be specific coverages and sublimits and detail we're happy to get into today. But if you think about the three buckets, there's first, you've got the property damage, you know, the property liability section and what can follow on the resident there. As part of that, you typically see around $100,000 in coverage. There were some interesting questions that came in about that we can get into. And that's one key, one key place where coverage is following. Second is what we call the, the legal and personal liability uh, as it relates to the resident. And finally is the contents and belongings coverage you know, type of bucket. And so those three buckets are important to look at. One key thing for the contents that you'd, a question you'd wanna ask about any policy that you're looking at is for the contents coverage, is it replacement cost value or is it actual cash value? Is that right? Michael, is it cash value? Is that right? Yep. Yep. Actual cash value or replacement cost value. So RCV versus ACV is how we abbreviate that. Replacement cost value, why this is important. You know, Michael, maybe you could give an example of the difference here, but it doesn't mean that RCV is always the right choice. I Meaning if you had a second home, like a vacation home or something like that, and you didn't mind taking time to replace your contents and things like that per actual cash value because it brings the cost of the premium down. It, it could be the right selection, but generally the higher quality coverage and the better coverage is going to be replacement cost value. And Michael, would you mind just giving an example of kind of how that plays out, how that difference plays out in a claim? Absolutely. So think of electronics, for instance, my MacBook. If I have a 10-year-old MacBook that gets damaged and I have to replace it, Actual cash value would provide me with a claim payment in the amount that that 10-year-old MacBook was worth at the time of the loss, which obviously they you know, depreciate at a, a pretty decent rate these days with the way Apple turns over their products, whereas replacement cost value would pay you out in an amount that would allow you to get something of like kind and quality. So it's just providing a more substantial payout and not as much including depreciation in the loss adjustment as an actual cash value payment would. Michael, thanks for that. Much appreciated. Here's another thing we found in research we were doing last year is dog bite insurance. All right. Some interesting stats. Four and a half million people suffer dog bites in the United States every year. And it's over 880,000 of them, at least in 2015, that was the number who require medical attention, right? Uh, as a result of that, and a number of lawsuits and legal liability as it relates to this, generally about half the people affected are children. Uh, and so it just becomes a very difficult and kind of sensitive thing. State Farm, who's one of the largest kind of retail insurers for HO3 policies, homeowners policies, you know, their stat, one third of all claims payout 
was Dogbite, 750 million bucks. And so it's a critical and important coverage to have. And yet so many people in the renter's insurance space do not provide it. And those that do often restrict what breeds are covered. It's like, okay, chihuahuas are covered. And then here's, you know, 16 other breeds <laughs> that are over 50 pounds where they're not covered at all. It's like all dog bark and no dog bite insurance out there. Uh, there's a lot of people really avoiding it because again, they're concerned about the loss ratios. It's understandable uh, and the risk that goes into that, but it's a very real risk uh, that affects folks. And we know this is especially important to property managers who are triple win property managers and have smart pet programs where they're saying, we want to allow you know, all breeds and all types of pets. Many of you work with pet screening. Many of you have pet damage guarantees and things like that as a part of your programs to owners. And it's so, so smart to do. But you know, the question is, okay, approving residents and approving residents that have these breeds when they're not insured and that risk is not addressed, you know, it's an open question and a big issue. And unfortunately, there wasn't a lot out there. And that's a gap. Uh, we really spent months, quarters, in fact, efforts to close and, and address. So just a couple things, you know, as backdrop and, and some information that's specific that'll be relevant in what we cover. And then the final thing is this and just our triple win breakdown. Then we're going to start opening up for questions. Feel free to put them in the chat and we've got a lot of them to hit today. So here's a couple of things. I'm just going to break down like kind of the top 10 things, one-liners here that, you know, were important to us as we looked at it. Number one was there wasn't a 100% managed solution out on the market. And what I mean by that is, hey, 100% of residents are offered a policy that is compliant with the property manager's requirements. And again, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a minute. But then it's compliance managed throughout the entire lease. Let's say somebody does uh, purchase insurance either through the offer to refer policy or outside of the policy. You know, what happens three months down the road when they don't pay their premium and that policy lapses, right, to ensure that coverage is taken care of? And there's a 100% compliance solution throughout the entire lease term. And so that was a problem that we endeavored to solve. We can share how we did it, whether you want to try to do it on your own or do it with second nature. Second is, you know, triple win insurance. Here we are in triple Wednesday. So we got to make the wordplay on triple win. So triple win insurance of, hey, what really puts the resident in the best position, the investor in the best position, the property manager in the best position so that everybody's covered, everybody's economically in the best position possible, experientially in the best position possible. And there's less friction to these aligned outcomes we want of people being protected and taken care of with a high value policy. Number three is a lot of the insurance providers out there, and you think even about the software providers that have started to offer stuff, a lot of what we've seen is so much of their customer base is large multifamily providers. And when you think about the fire risk of a 400 unit building, right, that's very different than the fire risk of a single home, right, and what that would cost, et cetera. But so many of the insurance products that are out there and that we've seen are really built for large multifamily because that's where a lot of the volume is and you know, not for the single family or small multifamily type of folks that, that we work with. And that created you know, a problem. It also created an opportunity to drive a higher value. Next is you know, thinking about the just highly regulated nature of insurance and that, hey, you can't sell insurance unless you're a a licensed agent, right? There's an ability to offer or have a 
refer to preferred policy, et cetera. And we'll get into the, the dynamics of this, but as far as actually being paid commissions, et cetera, and there's a number of folks out there paying marketing fees and things like that. And, and listen, uh, not an attorney, there, there's gray area in some of these places uh, that we can admit to, but hey, certainly if we were gonna do something, it was gonna be something that we felt very strongly was gonna be compliant and it can be difficult and people don't want to expose themselves to risk or necessarily go through all the hassle of becoming a licensed insurance agent's uh, agent or having an agency to be able to do it. We also saw this interesting bifurcation in the market. And there might be folks on this call who say, Andrew, my insurable interest is not in the resident's belongings and their contents, right? I don't have any insurable interest in that. Like, I hope nothing would happen for them. And I, you know, probably they should go get contents insurance, et cetera. But as far as the property and my fiduciary responsibility to the investor, et cetera, really I'm focused on this property damage type of piece and potentially some of the liabilities around it that could affect me. But the personal contents and belongings, I'm not going to, you know, come out and say that that's really where I want to stake my claim or have a requirement for that or those kind of things, or even make that a standard offering. And so, hey, I, I really just want these one or two buckets covered. Whereas other folks were saying, no, we want all three buckets covered, highest value possible for the resident, resident as well. And so we'll, we'll get into that. And we've addressed solutions for both folks because we felt there were reasonable perspectives on both sides of that. Already mentioned dog bite and how it limits breeds if they do have it. Another one was what's called additional living expense. And this is sometimes called loss of use. And so if there's a covered peril and something happens, right? And somebody, they can't inhabit the home themselves. Maybe they've got to move to another rental home for a month, right? And there's a month of rent uh, in another space that needs to be taken care of. Or perhaps it's a hotel for a few days is probably often what many of you run into. That was coverage that we were seeing missing in a lot of places that was highly requested and we wanted to make sure it was built into what we were offering. Another question is, what if residents want more coverage? What we talked to our sales team about is actually Bob Hansen. I'm not sure if he's on the call right now or if he's in another meeting, but you know, Bob's our head of sales at Second Nature, former SVP of, of operations at Home Partners of America. And, and like many people at one time was a renter himself. And he's one of those stories where the moving van just traveled off with all of his stuff, right? <laughs> Disappeared with all of his belongings. And he was sure glad he didn't just have $10,000 of contents coverage or worse, no contents coverage. He had purchased a policy with $30,000 worth of contents coverage. He was glad he had every penny, right? So what about residents who, it's not for most people, but there are some people where they've got a lot of stuff or they, maybe they've got special jewelry or a couple Rolex watches, things like that they want specially covered and taken care of. Okay, understandable. Can they still have an outlet to get additional coverage you know, at a great price and a convenient process. That was something we wanted to address as we did this. And then the final couple of things are when there are such wide options in pricing and coverages and just tons of questions that can come up. And many of those questions would be coming back to you and your team. It, it just, it's the enemy of speed in the leasing process, right? That creates friction in the leasing process and that critical outcome to getting uh, somebody insured and in the property as fast as possible. And so how do we do this the most second nature way possible, right? The most frictionless way possible was something we wanted to answer. And the other challenge is a lot of people are sending people to third party uh, sites and, and 
they're putting down credit cards and paying paying things outside of the system, et cetera. And that can create, again, these lapses and lack of visibility into that, which creates that compliance gap where only 41% of the 90% that should have the coverage. So those are kind of the problems in the triple win breakdown as we're going to go through this today. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to start bringing people up. Laura Mack will uh, we'll have UQ people up and just bring them up, bring them off mute. And we'll start answering questions. All right. The first one we'll bring up is Sam. I'm going to go ahead and spotlight you. You had a great question that you submitted in advance. Hi, guys. Um, so I'm uh, different than most other property management companies in that we have mostly low income tenants. Uh, I'd say it's like C class areas. And so it's hard enough getting them to pay the rent on time. We have higher eviction rates, um, you know, all of that kind of normal jazz. The only reason why I personally have not required it um, insurance was because so much of me, um, I believe that I, I'm at risk myself if I require it because now I'm responsible to cover it, even if they're not paying for the, for the coverage. So that's my question is how do you administer a renter's insurance program when the vast majority of your tenants are low income and barely pay rent? Hey, great question, Sam. Really appreciate it. Thanks for being here, man. Much appreciated. Thanks for going first. You know, and I'll let Michael jump in on this one, but I guess I would say having an insurance requirement for residents shouldn't necessarily make you liable for damages if they are out of compliance, you know, for that and with that policy. So I guess I just wanted to clarify, are, are you, is your understanding that if you have an insurance requirement for residents that they're supposed to be purchasing it and then they fail to do it or fall out of compliance at some point of the lease, that somehow that liability is transferred to you as the property manager? Now, most of the programs I've seen through um, either Appfolio, who's a provider, or the resident benefit package, it's, you know, you're paying for services independent of whether or not the tenant is actually paid for the services. And so I could have a situation where I have tenants that don't really want to comply and they pay their rent timely, but now they're not paying for some of these additional fees because they either don't agree to it or they don't want to. And so, you know, if, if I was in B-class and A-class areas, to me, it's relatively trivial. But since I'm in C-class areas where a $10 increase is a lot and they'll fight you over it, um, you know, I've just made it in the least very strongly re re recommended. Um, and I haven't done it as a requirement per se. I, I, you know, I think a lot of property management companies, especially the ones um, in NARPM, are more catering to single family homes, um, higher income people. But for me, you know, a lot of my, my people are minimum wage, mother, father, maybe a couple of kids uh, making, you know, $15 an hour, maybe. And so like any of this additional money is just, it puts me at risk because it's already relatively low margin. For me, it's, it's not worth the risk because of that. And so I guess that's my big question is how do you administer a program like that if there's a lot of risk that a tenant's not going to pay? Great question. And again, I'll let Michael jump in. After, and thanks for clarifying that. I appreciate that. So you know, a couple of thoughts right off the bat are, you know, you've got to weigh the risk of, you know, non-payment of premium, and then you've got to weigh the risk of no coverage. And certainly residents in this kind of financial position are not going to be in a place, right, to pay the thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars, right? In these lower probability, it's not going to be the majority of your tenants that have these kind of issues, right? But certainly when, when the issue does come up and when it does arise, it could put the property owner right in a difficult position because the resident hasn't protected themselves and they're not, you know, they're able to, to handle it and pay for it. 
you know, there's that risk that ultimately has to be weighed out. You know, and I don't see, again, much of a distinction between strongly recommending and having the requirement, how much you enforce the requirement, you know, is ultimately going to be up to you and how you decide to handle that in cases of non-payment and delinquent payment are going to be important. With second nature and the way we think set up things for our partners, what we have seen, you know, Sam is generally a 98% plus type of collection rate. Not all of that is collected, you know, right on the spot per se, but over a period of time it's taken care of. Um, and they're able to to maintain the vast majority of their policies is covered there. Michael, was there something you wanted to add? And Tao, if anybody else wants to jump into, would love to hear some other property managers' opinions on that. Yeah, I'll touch on a couple of things. So in regard to your concern over, you know, requiring it and the resident not paying you if they're enrolled into this, you know, preferred insurance option, the way most of these work and the way that get coverage program with Second Nature will work is that it's actually billed in arrears. So we would never bill you for someone who did not pay you all the appropriate premium for that month of coverage in question. Now, to Andrew's point, you're, there's still the risk of an uninsured home and there's there being damages, which is a, a separate risk. But as far as you all having to cover the cost of a resident's insurance, that would not be applicable with the way this program structured. And then on the flip side, Andrew touched on this earlier, but that bifurcation of liability only first contents included, there is an availability to go with a, a route that's a cheaper policy that provides liability only coverage for protection for your homes from resident cost damages. So it is substantially lower price for those residents and maybe more palatable for them to, to stomach along with their monthly rent. Al, thanks for joining us. Good to see you too, buddy. Just a different thought on this. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate people might not pay for it, but I think it's more of educating your owner the value of having the coverage and setting it up so that if you have tenants that might not be paying, your owner sees the value to pick up that cost because of how much it's potentially going to save them. And I would structure my deal that way. You know, we're in class A and class B. We can, we can make it mandatory. It's not an issue. But I look at just simple things that have happened where the tenant flushes uh, wipes down the toilet and it backs up and we got $10,000, $12,000 of damages. My owner, if I didn't have this policy, would end up having to have go to their insurance product, maybe have a $1,000, $2,500 deductible, maybe getting a premium increase when instead they could spend $10, $12, $15 a month, whatever the policy is going to cost, and know that it's better protection for them in the event that the tenant's not paying. So I would structure it such that it defaults back to them and explain to them why that's actually to their benefit to implement it that way. Dan, uh, just to answer the question too off the bat, as far as pricing goes on this, it was a place where Second Nature saw we wanted to be extremely competitive on the premiums. And so for you know, resident liability only and the property damage and the personal liability portions, which we can get into more detail on what's covered there, but no contents. Uh, we saw a lot of policies out there in that nine, 10, eleven dollar range. You know, is what a lot of people eight fifty in in one case we saw, and so seven ninety five is where we wanted to come in on pricing for that policy. For contents included, uh, we came in at ten ninety five, seeing that a lot of the market out there uh, was coming in at twelve, thirteen, fourteen, and so pretty competitive pricing on our policies. And then we actually fully manage it in the compliance throughout the lease term as a part of that. Really appreciate your question, Sam. Does that answer your question? Did you have a follow-up? 
No, I, th- I think it, it mostly does it. And I can understand it. I like the, the concept of couching it as a, hey, in lieu of having to, to actually hit your deductible and then do an insurance claim, which they're going to get it back. These guys, it's based on the tenant. And so it's a kind of a tenant related expense. And so for that reason, you know, if the tenant doesn't pay it, you'll cover it, but we'll know the tenant's a bad tenant. We need to get them out anyway. And, um, and you'll still be covered in case this happens. I, I had a situation uh, like kind of what you're referring to a couple, one where a property that I owned, the tenant actually had tenant insurance, but the, the way that the damage was and how it was set up, it wasn't covered in like the state farm policy. And so I ended up having to pay like $4,000 for a grinder pump because of the fact that the guy did it. And then similarly, a tenant had flushed wipes down a toilet. We, can't, we couldn't prove it was because there's three tenants, but I would think that, hey, if you have a coverage on the entire house, it's kind of in some regards a moot point. Um, and we had it happen three times in rapid succession. And, you know, we, we reached out to all the tenants that you can't do this, but we, we could never prove who it was. So, um, you know, I think to some level that can be very good as a way to explain it is, hey, look, we're going to administer as a mandatory policy. It's going to be on the physical tenant. But if the tenant then doesn't pay, you're going to be held responsible through that period. We'll try to get the money back from the tenant. They'll be held responsible for it. But at the end of the day, you know, we have to do this because we need to kind of protect your interest. Um, and I can give them some of these anecdotal stories. No, that's great. Sam, thanks again. Uh, appreciate it. We're going to bring up Jim Smith from Austin, who always has the best Zoom backgrounds. So a smile and entertainment for everybody as we bring Jim up. Jim, good to see you, my friend. And likewise, thanks for putting this on. Question, we do manage one of the few companies in town that will manage single family that has swimming pools. And our current requirement is that we require both the tenant and the landlord to carry a minimum of a $1 million liability policy with us names additionally insured. But we do require that all tenants carry renter's insurance, but the ones with the pools are the only ones that we make an active effort to make sure that we are insured and are notified by the insurance companies. So it's kind of twofold. Number one is, is the million dollar policy a, that's a, that's a limit that I established probably 10, 12 years ago. And I've kind of stayed with that. Is that still a good dollar amount to require both the tenant and the landlord? Should I require more? And number two, I'm open for ideas and, and anything else that y'all may offer on how to handle those properties with pools and or other water features. Great question. And Jim, just to clarify, your policy right now is for residents and owners where there's a pool on the property, a million dollar property damage and legal liability, um, you know, coverage minimum for your properties that don't have pools, you have a, a separate amount and a separate limit. Is that correct? Yes. For, pro- for properties that do not have a pool, we require the tenants to carry a minimum of a $300,000 liability. And all of our properties for single family, we, we do require owners to carry a million dollar umbrella policy. Yeah, I'll offer something quick on this and I'll let Michael really speak to what he's seen as far as out there on the, the data, the claims, the amounts and how to maybe think through the risk and what's the appropriate amount of coverage and how that's changed over time. Michael, if I can tee up for that. Um, you know, Jim, a lot of how we looked at this was thinking about, of course, with insurance, you know, part of the challenge is it's a very small percentage of folks who are going to have claims. Of the percentage that have claims, how many of those exceed, call it $100,000, which is what you generally see as an industry standard out there, right? And the answer is the vast majority, I mean, 
high 90%, uh, you know, are going to be under, under that 100,000 limit. So it's just a question of, okay, if we are going to cater to the percentage of folks who are, are going to exceed that and the risk that is there, it's going to increase the premiums for everybody, right? If we're including that in a master policy that everyone's offered and shared. And so whether it's 300 or 100 or a million, you know, part of our philosophy of where we wanted to start on this was we really felt like, hey, optimize this for the high 90% of folks. And then for the edge cases where it needs to be handled another way, we're going to have a path where you can have a separate requirement for those folks, for those properties, and ultimately direct them to a link where they can purchase the policy easily that meets those requirements. And so that way you can kind of uh, bifurcate and distinguish those folks. And there's a path for both, but then the compliance can be managed across the whole portfolio throughout the lease term is how we approach that. Michael, do you have some thoughts on just thinking about the risks, the amount of coverages and what we've seen over time with that? Yeah. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head there with the vast majority of claims falling under that hundred thousand dollar limit. Now I do understand that with pools being involved, that's a kind of a whole different ball game. And ultimately that's going to come down to what your experience is and what you're comfortable doing as far as that requirement. And oftentimes what we've seen is, you know, if there are pools involved, there might be a, a separate specific requirement for those that are renting with pools, like you mentioned, um, comparatively speaking to the standard renters, when they have additional hurdles to cross, and there's other avenues to get that type of insurance to reach that million dollar personal liability limit, because it is a more unique type situation than someone just having a home where they're concerned about a slip and fall. There's obviously a much higher uh, I guess, uh, experience rate of, of people having issues with the pools themselves. As far as kind of the programs that we're implementing here, like Andrew mentioned, 95, 99% of, of clients that we've worked with require the $100,000 liability limit. Some go up to 300,000, but for the most part, it's, it's gonna be under 100,000 to number one, provide a more affordable option for residents. And then number two, you know, in, improves resident relations by offering that affordability. Jim, great question, man. Much appreciated. I'm sure we'll see you uh, either later on or uh, in, in a future event. Thanks for being here. Okay, Laura, I think we've got another question queued up. The question that Jay asked, is there a way to increase the personal property coverage for a tenant or is it limited to 10K? Uh, yeah. Do we need to have specific lease addendum for the insurance product? Yeah, great question. And I'm going to tie in some of the other questions that came in advance to this, which is part of the process for Second Nature was looking at, okay, for resident coverage, again, there's always this balance of uh, how, how much contents coverage, you know, balancing that out with the premium costs and how those move on a sliding scale, what's going to create the best value for folks. And again, the vast majority of folks uh, will not have a claim. And we were thinking about in the case that somebody does, you know, you think about their essential belongings and like what they really need at replacement costs replaced right away. You know, $10,000 really felt like the right amount from a lot of what we'd seen to set that out as far as the amounts of claims and what that was covering in the tenant profiles of our customers. And so that's where we set kind of our default coverage, meaning if a resident doesn't care to get educated about insurance and everything else, and they're enrolled into that 1095 policy, that's a part of the resident benefits package, very simply signing their lease, right, will enroll them into that policy. However, there are the Bob Hansons in the world uh, that we recognize that we wanted a path for these folks, call it a, a single digit percentage 
of residents that have special considerations and want more contents coverage and what's being offered. We want it as simple and as easy of a path for them to get the policy and coverage for them. It's, it's probably going to cost them more, almost certainly going to cost them more, right? Uh, than the policy that we are offering. But if they want that 20, 30, $50,000 of personal contents coverage, then right in the lease, we've got that linked exactly where they can go and purchase a policy that's going to be compliant and tracked. Or if they wanted to upload their own State Farm, Liberty Mutual policy, what have you, uh, that's compliant and has the coverage that they want, we've got that uh, opportunity for them and to, to track that as an additional interest throughout the lease term. And if ever it laps and fall out of policy, we can get them enrolled and lease covered into the core policy until they're able to restore that uh, level of coverage that they wanted. So it gives the resident options for the amount of contents. You know, ultimately, if they want more and additional coverage, they have the opportunity to do that, but still ensures that 100% of residents are, are covered and tracked and compliant. And so a great question that came in. Thank you for that one. And hopefully that answers a little bit of some other people's questions about how we wanted to set up the process and how it gets tracked. All right. Tal Kramer, man, you came up to help us answer a question earlier, but you had a question yourself. Can we, can we bring you back for round two? Sure. I don't remember what my question was. <laughs> Where's the best uh, place to get a cocktail in DC? I'll, I'll turn the table on you. That's my question. Yeah, there we go. The front page closed. Front page, I know. Maybe uh, what it farmers and fishers, or uh, anyway, we'll have to go sometime. But um, maybe, maybe it wasn't a question. Maybe it was just a, a comment that you put in there, Tal. Um, if you only have liability coverage without personal contents, then it will be more often get their own policy than you have to audit. You know, the, the big thing for us, I mean, we started off with the Appfolio liability only product, and, um, you know, just like we do with filters and everything else, we want 100% compliance. And if we give them a reason to go elsewhere, they may. Great point. That's why we're seeing a lot of people, again, the 1095 policy that we're offering, price competitive to even what Appfolio and others were offering on liability only, that includes additional coverage uh, at a competitive price and, and certainly competitive to what residents will find out on the retail market. As a just a point of fact for folks, we did a lot of research of if individuals are going out into the retail market to purchase their own renter's insurance policy, to purchase a similar policy to what we put together, they're going to be paying in the teens. And it does vary by state. In some states, you know, the average renter's insurance policy exceeds $20 per month. Uh, places like Florida, et cetera, it's just more expensive to have insurance than in places like Wyoming, just based on the natural kind of risks and things that are there and the the track record and history that are there, but a lot of it as a national average was, was coming out in the teens as far as that. And so 1095, including contents insurance, we knew was going to be very competitive and, and not motivate a lot of people to look elsewhere to find a similar type of coverage. Great question. Uh, and great comment, Tal. Thanks for being on here. We may have to bring you up a uh, third time for a charm a little bit later. Let's see. We've got next question in the queue, Laura Mack, who we got? Bring it up, Karen Jordan next. And Regina, if you had a question, we can bring you up after Karen. Karen, great to see you. How's California? Sunny and beautiful. Awesome. Awesome. Is my is my whiskey collection covered? Would that be replacement or would that be cash? <laughs> I, I think Karen's whiskey collection, she may be looking to go over $10,000 worth of coverage. I've seen some pretty special bottles back there, Karen. Right, right. <laughs> we require uh, insurance upon moving before they even get a key. So that's been a really good policy for us but compliance 
right? That's the big problem. And I'm just wondering, like, what's the best practice? How do, we, how do you handle that to ensure that throughout the lease, that's a compliant um, and they're keeping that policy in place? One follow-up question for you, Karen. It sounds like when residents are executing their lease, your team is saying, hey, we require you to have renter's insurance and you'll need to provide to us proof that you've acquired renter's insurance for the address uh, that you're, and here's, you know, here's the requirements as it relates to that. Are they just emailing your leasing agents a copy, a receipt? Are they, you know, physically showing it to them? What's your process for asking for that proof? They're emailing the policy, a copy of the actual policy with us being named as the um, additional insured. And so we're getting that as part of their lease package prior to moving. So we have that on file and we put the date that it's set to expire. So we kind of keep track of that date. And again, as it comes up for renewal, we're reminding them. But that's a lot of work. That's a lot of just follow up. But again, if it gets canceled in between, we get notified because we're on the policy. But again, it's just that follow up and making sure. And what happens if they don't renew it? If they don't, if they cancel in the middle of a lease, yeah, obviously it's a lease violation breach. We can you know write them up of that stuff. But we're in California, so it's all kinds of good stuff of what we can do. But um, I guess it's the admin part of it. How? What's the best practice for that? Yeah. Great question. And again, your, your current process puts you ahead of a number of folks that, um, you know, aren't even doing that much yet or haven't figured out that much or taken on that much, been willing to take on that much to administer and track the policies. Um, and the reality is just like you said, property managers and the staff, it's staff changes. There's, there's going to be, you know, stuff that happens over the course of the residency and, and somebody falls out of compliance with their lease, even if, you're notified as an additional insured or an additional interest you know, type of party. How well does that get captured and processed, right, uh, to ensure that that resident is quickly and expediently moved uh, towards coverage? And so the way that we have set this up is default, somebody's enrolled into the resident benefits package, they've got coverage. So if a resident does nothing, right, if the default is, I want to do this the easiest and most convenient way possible, boom, they're covered right under the policy that's compliant. If again, a resident wants to go out and purchase their own policy because they've got different requirements or they just want a different carrier or what have you, for whatever reason, small percentage might do that. We've got, again, a direct link where they follow those instructions and add it as an additional interest to be able to track that policy all throughout. Additionally, in the lease language, we just laid it out of, hey, if you fall out of compliance with your policy, you're subject to, and we recommend something like a $25 lease violation fee, you know, pretty standard, right? And what that can do is it can cover, as Michael mentioned, <clears throat> hey, the 1095 type of premium in arrears, right? Ultimately, we can back that up to the date where they fell out of compliance and coverage. So they're covered for that month, right? Uh, or the portion of that month in which uh, they fell out of compliance. And we're able to adjust the charge, you know, for the RVP to include the 1095 premium, you know, going forward from that point, uh, assuming they want to stay in that policy. Now, let's say a couple months later, they say, no, I really do want $40,000 of contents coverage. And I did fall out. So thanks for covering it at this inexpensive cost here. But, you know, I'd like to actually get this more expensive $22 policy because that's what I want. They just follow the exact same process, right, for uploading their policy at that same link that we've set up. It's tracked and then we can adjust the charge down to 95 and it's handled outside. We're tracking it there. And so, we're managing all of those movements throughout the lease term for the property manager and the ledger movements as well. That's how we're handling it. It's, 
it's definitely a beast to try to take on internally and yourself when there's so many other things going on and maintenance and everything else. You know, hopefully that's where second nature is adding some value of just saying, we're doing this at no additional cost outside of our premium and what people are paying if they're a resident benefit package customer. So is that helpful, Karen? Yes, thank you. No, good stuff. Always. Awesome. Okay, great. Great to see you. Looks like we've got Regina up next from Georgia. Parts of it have been answered, but the part that has not is just like the RBP, as we're rolling that out, we're still doing as renewals happen. Is that how this would work? Yeah. Because we don't require it right now. So we would have to start that. Yeah. A, great question. And then B, you got right to the crux of the issue in your comment there at the end. If it's always been a requirement for the property manager, so anybody today, you know, I, there might be considerations, you know, Sam brought up some great things to get us kicked off, but, um, you know, generally we would say, hey, we recommend uh, having it as a, as a requirement, even if you're still working on choosing who you want to work with on insurance or how you want to do it. And the reason is because if you've had that requirement across all of your leases, ultimately what you can do, and we specifically in our lease language and everything else that we install as a part of our process, say that it's really at any time a property manager can ask the resident to provide proof of current insurance, right? That meets the requirements. Uh, and so what that allows somebody to do is ultimately say, hey, we're reaching out. You can reach out to ultimately all the residents and have them go through this process to provide proof of insurance. Uh, and again, if they have it, great, here's the process to upload it and here's how it'll be tracked from that point forward. Second Nature's handling that. Um, if not, here's this really inexpensive and convenient option, right, to get covered versus having to, to go out and do that. Or you can choose in the middle, like we said, uh, if you wanted a specific coverage, you can go shop an individual policy right here and it's gonna be tracked and you can change the amounts and pay a little bit more if you want additional coverage. Uh, so that's a nice thing of being able to enroll everybody all at once. If it's not part of your lease agreement, et cetera, I'm not an attorney and I may lean on some other property managers, what guidance they would give you or what their attorneys have given them in handling that. But certainly as a part of the new lease and the renewal process, that's a point to install it and get folks enrolled and start to get everybody covered. A very natural part, uh, a very natural point to enroll folks into the program and into coverage. Michael, anything you'd add to that or? No, yeah. To, to your point, if if there's no language in the lease already, then it's it's not something that you'll want to try to uh, retroactively enforce on any current residents. Um, like Andrew mentioned, it's a compliance issue, regulation issue, and would uh, would open up a big can of worms. So moving forward with the renewals and uh, new move-ins generally creates a phase up or ramp up time of about twelve to fifteen months as you get those units covered, insured under the, the master program or third party or HO for whatever they decided. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. Tal, I see your hand up, man. Third time's a charm. Let's do it. Regina, are you using the GAR contract, Georgia Association of Realtors? Okay. First things first, I think the GAR contract has standard language that does um, require them to have insurance. So you do have it in your lease already. Now it's a question of implementation and you can start that out by simply sending out a communication that says your lease requires this. We need proof of insurance. And by the way, we have this great new program. But the other part I'd add on this that Andrew's really well familiar with is treat it the way we started with the filter program instead of a 12 to 15 month rollout, 
again, just like I said to Sam earlier, explain to your owners why it's beneficial and make it an opt out, not an opt in. And your owners would pick up the cost because they benefit by this until such time as your new lease is in place that puts it into your benefit package or whatever. We, we tell Tal Kramer's uh, story all the time, probably at least a couple of times a week to folks who are onboarding with us, Regina. And the reason is because when people were onboarding filters, utility connection concierge, credit building, ID protection, a number of the things in the resident benefit package that we offer and likely that we're working with you on, you can wait for a resident new lease or renewal, but you've got these folks who are a few months in between, right? And, you know, listen, there's preventive maintenance benefits to the filters, right? There's resident retention benefits and lease retention benefits, which is huge for the owners to reduce that vacancy cost, right? And so actually we found in Tal's case, it was all, but I think a couple owners, you know, who said, we're in, we're good. A couple who asked him about it, this, this, that. Uh, and, and because Tal, you know, he's, He's the persuasive guy he is. I think he convinced the two that had questions. So he had like 100% on board. What we've seen across other customers who don't want to get into the one-to-one -one conversation, they just let 85, 90% who are in cover it for a period of time. And then that, you know, food percentage, rather than getting into a conversation and explaining it, they just opt them out and let them roll in at the new lease or renewal at that point. And again, you have this option to do this directly with the tenant for the insurance portion. As a part of that, you could, you could potentially... I'll also appeal to owners on that. So it gives you some options to think about. Great question. And Tal, thanks for jumping in. All right, we've got a couple more questions coming in. Keep them rolling. These are good. Hopefully this is good stuff and you guys are enjoying this. What do we got next, Laura Mack? I've got maybe Adam's question. And Adam's mic is not working, so I'll read it out for him. Uh, the question is, how does pet coverage work in this policy and what are the limits? Great question. We had multiple people ask this in advance as well. And Michael, I'm actually going to turn this one to you to talk a little bit about both the dog bite portion, which is pretty meaningful and significant, as well as pet damage, anything else relating to pets involved in the policy. Absolutely. Yeah, I did see some of the, the pre-sentence questions included a lot of questions about pet damage. So I'll start there and then move to the dog bite piece. Um, when it comes to pet damage, essentially what this type of policy would cover is if a resident had a, a you know an approved pet or registered pet, as Andrew mentioned earlier, that caused damage to the, the home or unit in some way, let's say it tore up the carpet, tore up the baseboards, whatever it may be, there's coverage available under this policy where uh, you, you as a property manager could file a claim to get reimbursed for that loss that occurred. Now, there are small deductibles associated with that coverage, but it does allow you to file that claim and not necessarily you know, have to pursue the resident for that amount or use the security deposit and whatnot and just provide some benefit in that capacity. So that's the pet damage piece. And then on the dog bite liability side, this type of coverage would protect the residents if they, let's say they had a dog that was again approved um, or, or registered and they were outside with that dog and a neighbor was walking by, came in the yard to say hello, and then there was a, a bite incident. And that neighbor had to go to the hospital, had some medical expenses or, or filed a lawsuit. There's protection for that resident against that lawsuit to cover medical expenses for that neighbor. Um, what have you relating to that dog bite incident would be covered under our dog bite endorsement that we've included in the policy. Yeah, and I think as far as current amounts, we can we can go ahead and share that. Somebody may be listening to this recording years from now, and so could be subject to change down the road, but 
as of today, when we're recording this, if I got this right, Michael, it's $1,000 of pet damage at a $250 deductible. Is that correct? That's correct. So in my example, if the dog tears up the carpet and that carpet replacement is $750, what we'd be able to pay out is $500, which is the $750 less the $250 deductible. And what a lot of clients that we've worked with do, they end up do charging that $250 deductible back to the resident. But ultimately, that would be up to you all how you decide to proceed there. And then on the dog bite liability side, that limit is $25,000 with no deductible. So again, medical expenses, lawsuit defenses um, relating to dog bites would be covered up to $25,000. One key piece of this too, you probably heard like registered pets, which is something we really worked with the carrier on talking about because you know, what we want is the incentive for residents to have transparent and clear, like these are the pets or animals, right, that are on site. We know many of you have uh, pet fees and programs, et cetera, related to that. And so, you know, in order to get it covered, et cetera, we, we want to make sure uh, that it's not it's not random animals that weren't registered and <laughs> haven't been a part of the, the compliance on the other side of your pet policies and programs there. So that helps you drive some compliance across the board. Okay, great question. Hopefully that answered a number of people's questions on pets. And it looks like my guy, Steve Pardon is in the house. Can we bring Steve? So uh, we had our gal Chili Cheese Fries and she called our office and she said, J-Max, um, I was cooking some Chili Cheese Fries. This is a message literally that she left um, and, I, and I burned up the kitchen. And that's literally what happened. She was cooking some Chili Cheese Fries. She burned up the kitchen. Fortunately with her carrier, it was pretty easy. We filed the claim with them because we require, like Karen does, we, we do on the back end all of that work that she's talking about. We filed it through them. They sent an adjuster, blah, blah, blah. When claim time comes and chili cheese fries burns up my next kitchen, how do I get my owner's kitchen covered through second nature? <laughs> oh, man. We got to have like a whole separate triple win live just on like great insurance stories, like real stories from property management, because uh, that that deserves its own episode, probably. Well, Steve, thanks again for being here, man. Great to see you. And uh, the answer to this is very simple. There, there, are, there are other folks, actually, we've heard in the industry, a couple of folks who have come over to, to our policy to work with us recently that were telling us other carriers make it extremely difficult to file a claim, like got to fill out a paper form still. And, and you know, there's a perspective on insurance of like, how do we make this as hard as possible to do? Because that discourages people from filing claims, ultimately claiming and, and the loss ratios, the economics impacted by that. Of course, we're thinking, what's the most second nature way possible uh, to do this? And so essentially, we would just have a dedicated page for folks to file claims, depending on what the claim is, if it's like personal belongings or contents, right? Uh, Michael can help me out, but I, I think that would be just a, a resident claim and something they would file. If it's property damage, which sounds like the the situation you're talking about, hey, burned up like the actual property as a part of trying to make these chili cheese fries, um, that that claim could be filed by the property manager uh, or the resident. Is that correct, Michael? Yep. So basically, whether it's a liability claim affecting the property or if it's a contents claim affecting the resident, that's where it will vary who files the claim. Residents are responsible for their belongings. They can call the carrier, email the carrier, submit that claim. And then on the flip side, if it's damage to your kitchen due to this chili cheese fries, you're able to file the claim directly through the carrier as well um, via email, via phone. Um, and there's avenues that are available for you to file that claim. The adjuster would reach out, begin the investigation, talk to the necessary parties, 
um, and, and proceed from there with the, the process of adjustment. And that carrier is like a dedicated second nature carrier or like we're not on our own with the carrier, right? It's like kind of through. It, it's yeah. So the, the carrier that will is kind of facilitating this program that we've got in place. Now, if it's a, a third party policy through State Farm, that's obviously has to go through the residence policy. But if it's the HO4 through our partnership or the master through our partnership, that's all done by the same carrier that we work with. Cool. Thank you. Steve, great question, man. Thanks for jumping on. I see at least five people have ordered some Uber Eats chili cheese fries. People are getting hungry around this time of day, probably opening up a beer on the East Coast in some places. Um, we've got more questions rolling in though, so we're gonna answer them uh, as they're coming in. I've got one in the chat here. Let's see. Is there a way to have the resident to register for this insurance outside of going through our PM company? The answer is absolutely yes. You know, there's a referral link and people people could sign up for uh, an HO4 policy and a referred policy. However, um, to get the benefit of the master policy, correct me if I'm wrong here, Michael, that's really something that we're setting up for professional property managers and driving a lot of value of here's why you want to rent from a professional property manager. They're going to give you an amazing policy at a great price, super conveniently as a part of signing your lease and a resident benefits package. And so if there's questions or concerns about that, we'd love to to hear what's underneath that and potentially address that, that could be helpful to other folks. But you know, the short answer is yes, there is a way to get referred and tracked through a policy um, through, a, through a referred HO4 that could be provided to a resident. If somebody wanted to go that route, the residents just wouldn't be getting as good of a, as good of a deal um, in the vast majority of cases. Moving on, sticking to moving, we've got a, okay, this is a serious question. This may take a second to answer. But Tracy Norris asked, and since Tracy Norris asked, we're going to answer it. Uh, Tracy asked, what is the step-by-step -step process to roll out within my portfolio? Hey, I already use Second Nature for the REP for filters, for utility connection, for rewards, and now I'm adding credit uh, ID and would like to include insurance as I'm bringing those in as well. The good news is, Tracy, like you already have the car on the road right? It's like you've got the minivan and it's going down I-65 South, right? Humming at 65 miles an hour. You're just going to be adding a couple passengers in. You know, you're going to start filling up the, uh, not just the front seats, but the back seats, right? With additional features to your resident benefit package. And so the good news is all of the operational pieces are really in place. It's just going to be a matter of connecting with the Second Nature onboarding team uh, to get your agreement updated, uh, the pricing updated for the resident, uh, you know, which will update in the GL account on the ledger, updating the lease documentation to include the additional products and start rolling that in on new leases renewals. And we talked earlier about how to accelerate adoption mid-lease. I know you did that in your company to the tune of a few hundred properties, uh, getting them all on right away. And uh, man, credit ID insurance, those products, really high value for the resident, um, going to do a lot for building their credit score, protecting them for a million dollar ID policy, uh, which is really great. And, and those kind of issues. And then a, a, a renter's policy is a part of that, like we talked about today. So there'll be an update to the lease, update to the ledger. Uh, Second Nature team will, will help roll that out. We'll update the marketing flyers and everything we created for you. But all the pieces are there. It's just a matter of updating those and putting those in place. Same motions that uh, you've already been through. Great question. I'm just seeing more about chili cheese fries here. Okay, good, good, good. Yes, 250 day one, Evan says, uh, enrolled getting the owners on mid-lease. That's great. Laura, I'm, I'm going to go, I've got some questions here, Michael, if you want to pull a couple off of the sheet. 
that were submitted in advance. Um, we've also got, I think, maybe a follow-up question from Sam while Michael's pulling a couple of those to pull up. Yeah, so so real quick, again, I, I think that there's a logic uh, behind, like, um, if there's damage, if it's a single-family home, uh, because obviously the damage was caused by that individual tenant, but still going back to me with five-unit buildings, six-unit buildings, like, and you don't know it's a backup, right, in the basement. So in, in that situation, I would assume that, again, going back to it, if the entire policy is covered, master policy with you guys, then it, it's, it's very logical, it's very easy. But if you now have a situation where it's, you know, each of these individual tenants can opt out getting State Farm versus this, it seems like it would be a little bit of a game of he said, she said, right? So how do you work in those type of situations? I think if I were to go with it, I would definitely go for, towards a master, a master policy with you and kind of mandate it. But um, in case the full adoption hadn't occurred or, or whatever, like, how do you adjudicate in those situations? And I'm going to expand just a little bit on this question because there's also some good questions that came in, Sam, about, um, hey, even in a single family context, for example, you know, many cases, if you're buying a renter's insurance policy, an HO4 policy, retail or otherwise, family is like included in that. But there may be like an uncle, you know, John, who's not really an uncle and not really familiar per se, but he's he's effectively a roommate, right, in the house, in one of the rooms. And so a question of does the policy cover that? When people go out retail, generally it'll, it'll cost a few extra bucks to add somebody who's non-familial to the policy. It's, it's, a, it's not like a whole nother insurance policy, but it can be a few extra bucks per person to do that, to add roommates, uh, you know, as an example. And, you know, there's a real legitimate question of like, do you want to do that? And, and really in the case of, call it the property damage, et cetera, it would be nice to include, Michael, I think we have the ability to add one or two roommates. Uh, yeah, on the HO4 side, you can add up to, you know, I think two, two or so roommates. So there's the ability to add a roommate or two, which is nice. And for the property damage, everything else, et cetera, versus having to go get their own policy. Um, however, the contents and belongings benefit is worth thinking about if you're actually the resident, right? Because, hey, this 10K benefit, let's say we have an event and everything's destroyed, right? Including Uncle John's stuff and all of our stuff. Well, now that $10,000 benefit is going to be split, you know, across folks, uh, you know, and how that gets used. And so it may behoove the resident to say, we've purchased this policy, et cetera, for our family. John, you may want to go purchase some personal belongings or your own insurance policy, et cetera, as you see fit, uh, you know, if they didn't want to, to split that benefit. Vast majority of people, again, are not going to have a claim. So it could make sense to spread it out, you know, spread the cost of the premium across the house, et cetera. I'm not sure there's a right or wrong answer to that, uh, you know, and how people want to want to treat that and handle that. To your question, which is a really great one, which is, okay, let's say we've got a quadplex, eightplex, 16plex, whatever it is, and there's some shared uh, <laughs> systems and whatnot, and it's just difficult to prove, um, you know, where was the cause, who is the cause of the property damage that we're experiencing on the premise. That's that's the core of your question of how's that identified and adjudicated? Can, can you, Michael, explain a little bit of what would be the best way to, and what options would somebody have to file the claim? And ultimately, what's the claims adjuster going to be looking at to, to identify that kind of thing? Yeah. So if there's a loss in a, in a you know four or five unit building, like you mentioned, then what would first happen? The claim is submitted. And let's say it's through the master program. The carrier would reach out get recorded statements from you all, talk to the residents, kind of understand what happened, basically do a full investigation. 
Then what they'd also do, they'd also look at the surrounding units if there was damage there as well. They'd determine if there were other policies in place. Um, and, and something to point out is if if there's another, you know, let's call it a state farm policy in place on the same unit, for instance, that would be primary to the master policy in this situation. However, if it's in a, a neighboring unit, then what they would work to do, the carriers, by, by they, I mean the carriers, would work out and investigate where the fault lied, or if you know it was partial fault on unit one versus unit two, they would come to an agreement of some sort and determine whose liability lies where. And oftentimes they will even split the total cost between uh, the two of those carriers if it is a split liability type situation. So if someone was enrolled under the master and was, and, and really this isn't that common, but if for instance, they were somehow 30% liable versus 70% liable for unit two who was on State Farm, State Farm would pay 70% of that claim. And then the master program through second nature and get covered would pay the 30%. But ultimately it, it, it's tough to give a concrete answer because every claim is different and they will for you know the larger type losses, they will do a full investigation into each incident. They'll talk to the residents involved, talk to the property manager, get you know written statements and make sure that they fully understand what happened. And then with you know the fires and, and stuff like that, they'll also get the fire reports um, you know, reports showing the, the cause and origin of the losses and whatnot. Yeah, so so just to, to, and I think that's a great answer. So thank you for that. I guess my, uh, just a follow-up question. Again, my specific situation is a backup that went eight units um, and it's a, a three units that they're all on top of each other units. And so, you know, there's no real major damage to any of the structures, no contents, no anything, but just the basement now has to have remediation because of the, the black water. Um, my question, though, uh, so so thank you for answering that. I think I understood that. Is there ever a situation in which my owner, because again, going back to what Tal said, my my whole one of the ways that I'm literally going to be um, suggesting this would be to say, look, you had I have an example with a, a tenant that was was putting feminine products and or wipes down. We had three backups over the course of nine months. Each backup cost fifteen hundred dollars. Um, if we had a master policy, and even if the tenant wasn't paying, if we now covered it. Now you wouldn't have been out anything except for maybe a small deductible or whatever. So um, is there ever a situation in which if all tenants have some sort of policy in place, or let's say one doesn't have a policy because, you know, again, all this administrative burden that occurs that my owner is not going to now be made whole for whatever reason, right? Like I just, is, have you ever seen an experience like this? I know you guys are uh, based on um amazing service, but I know State Farm's not based on amazing service. So is there ever a situation which there is real damage that's done caused by a tenant of some sort and um, the claim is denied? You know, assuming it falls under the covered perils that are detailed in the policy, no, that would not happen. Now, if the resident didn't have insurance and they were the, the cause of the loss, so let's say I'm living in the middle unit and I was the one that was putting the foreign objects into the toilet and I didn't have a policy in place, Unfortunately, the, the master in this situation would not kick in because it, it wasn't caused by an insured or in an insured unit. Um, however, if that resident that caused the loss was insured under the master or enrolled into this program, then it would be covered based on the way you described that example. Great question. And I think it's even worth covering, Michael, just like, you know, a couple common, you know, when you think about denied claims or, or perils that are not covered, like I, I think about um, appliances potentially not Appliance backup, you know, would be a good distinction from uh, the actual appliances themselves. You know, maybe you could cover that as far as uh, what's covered and not covered there. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the questions I did see on the, the sheet here that were sent in previously was, 
what is the coverage like and how is it comparable to big names like State Farm? So that, that's a very good question. And, and really, it comes down to how are master policies like this different than HO4s, which is a standard renter's insurance policy. And kind of the main factor is that these are specifically tailored for property management companies, landlords and owners, to provide as good as possible as or good as possible liability protection from resident caused damages. Whereas on the HO4 side, it will be more expensive, but it's more tailored to resident benefits, like the content limits, um, unique endorsements that they can add. Um, so that's just kind of a quick overview of a uh, of kind of a difference between this type of program and a state farm and that this is really tailored and designed for property managers and landlords like yourselves. Um, as far as the, the you know, common exclusions or you know, common coverages, you're looking at the five major perils of fire, smoke, explosion, water, and overflow of sewer. Those are gonna be included on any policy you see, but what makes this type of policy unique is that we're automatically including things like collapse, falling objects, freezing of pipes, overflow of appliances, um, you'd have loss of rental income, pet damage, uh, bed bug remediation, mold remediation. Those aren't items that would normally be included on an HO4, specifically because a resident isn't generally interested in paying additional premium to get those included. But they are automatically included on this, this second nature offering. And then as far as kind of when they would take effect or apply, it's when the resident is negligent or liable for the loss. So for example, if they fell asleep while cooking and caused a fire, that would be a great example of something that's covered. Now, to Andrew's point here, items that would not be covered would, would generally fall under situations where the resident wasn't legally liable. So let's say a natural cause, like a lightning strike caused a fire. The resident isn't negligent for that. That, unfortunately, would be excluded. Um, similarly speaking, flooding. Flooding is commonly excluded across all types of policies. If there's heavy rain that seeps into the home or unit, if uh, a pool overflows because of a monsoon, if there's a hurricane, tornado, those types of things would not be covered because they fall under the natural cause exclusion. Um, you know, to kind of continue that down that path, uh, you're looking at equipment breakdown type situations would also be excluded. If my ceiling fan uh, had an electrical shortage or something like, like that and caused a fire, unfortunately, again, this coverage would not apply because I, as the resident, was not negligent or liable for that type of situation. And that's really, Michael, you know, where the other side of this coin, the property investor, or the property owner's policy, right, is something to look at and, and say, hey, there's opportunities for master policy. Second nature will be looking at this uh, ultimately as we have a lot of success on the resident side. Um, you know, ultimately, hey, how can we help property managers do the same thing? And that's a place where, man, being added as an additional insured on the owner's policy, it's a, it can be a real administrative battle. Uh, for folks. And, and those policies generally are also much higher premiums on a monthly basis than a renter's policy because they cover the kind of things that you were just talking about. So, um, you know, th that's really where you would see the, those items handled is going to be on an owner's policy as opposed to a renter's and resident's policy where it's their liability and their issue. Um, good, 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 good. All right. Great questions. Uh, listen, we we budgeted a little time to go over. We are we are over our scheduled time, but we've been raising money for Ukraine the whole time. We're up over twelve hundred bucks. Laura Max says so. That's great. A couple hundred more bucks here live. Thank you guys for your questions. This has been fantastic, uh, Michael. I'd just like to say thank you again. Thank you to everybody who asked questions here today and participated. Thank you to Laura Mack who makes all of this possible. Thank you to Carol Housel and the whole team that's going to take this in post production. And we've got about, gosh, I don't know, 20 other questions 
that we still need to answer. We'll be doing that in the Triple Win Property Managers group. Uh, Laura will drop a link in the chat of where you can go if you're not a member of that group. Uh, listen, I'm on vacation here in Santa Rosa Beach, Florida, but if we're raising money for Ukraine, that's a, that's a good use of vacation, answering some insurance questions. So Michael and I will be in there posting some of your questions and answering them right in the feed so everybody can see them answered. Uh, thanks again for everybody for your engagement today. Thanks for being with us on a Triple Wednesday. Hope you have a great rest of your day, a great week. Keep stacking and adding your triple wins. Hopefully we can help you uh, make insurance one of those in the weeks to come here. That's it. Take care, everybody. That's all for today's Triple Win Property Management Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sharing a piece of your life with us. We do not take it for granted. I also want to give a shout out to Carol Housel for everything she and our team does to make these possible. It's crazy to think about over 5,000 professional property managers have pressed play on episodes in season one and season two now. And we really want to encourage you to keep giving feedback because more and more people are listening. It's getting better and better and better thanks to everything that you're sharing with us. If you like this enough to listen, want to encourage you to share it with other people. Um, you can give us feedback directly on those social media channels, Facebook, LinkedIn, wherever you're hanging out. You can also send us an email at triplewin at secondnature.com. And we just want to give more. We're, we're, there's no sales pitch here. Just want to offer more resources that help you find and stack your next triple win and become a triple win driven property manager. So where can you find that? You can find the private Facebook group. You can find our blog. You can find our newsletter. You can find more resources all at rbp.secondnature.com. Just search for what you're looking for there. And every time we see you, we want to see a better version of you and your business to that end. Keep it going, feel inspired, take our encouragement, and we'll see you next time.